Welcome to Advancing the Cause, the podcast of IFCA International. I'm Richard Vargas, the Executive Director of IFCA and your host today. Uh, today we're going to be talking about post-millennialism and amillennialism's growth. And uh, my guest with me today, Jeremy Howard. Jeremy is a graduate from Calvary Bible College in 2013. He has a Bachelor of Science in Advanced Biblical Studies. He and his wife, Melissa, moved to Utah in May of 2014 so that he would pastor, eventually would be called Orchard Hills Bible Church, originally was called Payson Bible Church. He is the host of the Do Theology podcast with fellow IFCA pastor Ken Chipchase. So we want to welcome you today, Jeremy. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, glad to be here. Well, there's a strong resurgence of uh, eschatological views uh, that began with a large swing of Christians being attracted toward uh, amillennialism. And I think it probably kind of came with a Reformed resurgence. A good many of those that moved to that view uh, have continued on in their journey and have ended up even today as postmillennialists, and we'll see if they keep on uh, traveling down that road. And for our listeners, if they're not familiar with what uh, amillennialism is and postmillennialism, I'd, I'd like for you, Jeremy, and our, our discussion here to help them understand these views a little bit better and um, how you've been engaging some of those on social media who have different views than we would have as premillennialists in IFCA to think about uh, what they believe uh, and, and why they believe it. Because I think sometimes... Uh, some of, not everybody, but some of these guys aren't really thinking exegetically. They're not necessarily thinking biblically. Um, sometimes it's a much more simplistic look as to why they've changed their views. So to start off, uh, Jeremy, could you help our listeners understand maybe some, some of the major differences between someone who believes what we teach in the IFCA, premillennialism, regarding the timing of the kingdom, and say someone who is amillennial or postmillennial. Sure, yeah. Uh, it can sound like a, a big task, but I think we can set the fundamentals in front of us and kind of have a basic understanding. The millennial views, as we think about the different eschatological options, the different end times options, are really defined by where they believe Jesus is going to be returning in relation to the kingdom. So not where is in like a physical geographical location, but more of a, a where on the timeline he's going to be returning, when he's going to be returning in relation to his kingdom. So premillennialists believe that Jesus will be returning before he establishes his kingdom on the face of the earth. So we are pre-millennial. There will be a second coming of Jesus Christ before the 1,000-year millennial reign. And essentially, everybody you talk to who claims premillennialism will believe in a literal 1,000-year reign for the Messianic kingdom. You'll encounter some who don't, but the majority uh, who fall on the premillennial side will believe that. Then you have the amillennial position, and that prefix of just the letter A, amillennial, means they believe that Jesus is returning in reference to a literal thousand years. All millennialists, I guess you could say, believe that we are currently in the kingdom. It's a spiritual reality. It's not a physical kingdom. It's not an explicit on-the-face-of-the-earth kingdom as premillennialists believe. Uh, premillennialists believe that Jesus will return and reign from Jerusalem, that he will have a physical presence on the face of the earth, and it will be 
undisputed that he is king of kings and lord of lords, whereas amillennialists believe he's ruling and reigning in the hearts of his people in the church. And so right now we are in the kingdom. It's not a literal thousand years. It's been happening ever since the first century, and Jesus could return at any moment. They believe in an imminent return of Christ, as premillennialists do, but they just don't believe it's in reference to the kingdom or the literal thousand years. And then you have the postmillennial position, which holds that Jesus will return after the millennial reign. He will return after the messianic kingdom has been fulfilled. And what's interesting with postmillennialists is I think very few of them would say it's a literal thousand years. So even though they believe there's an important millennial reign of Christ that the church needs to recognize, very few of them would would say, well, it's an actual thousand years that will start here and end uh, at his return. I think the majority of them kind of take the amillennial position on that and say, well, we, we can't know exactly if it's going to be a literal thousand years or not, but they do hold to an actual kingdom of Christ that will start at a certain point and it will last until his return. They also believe that during that time, uh, the world is going to get more and more Christian. And remember, this is all happening before his return. So the world isn't becoming Christian because Christ is on the face of the earth ruling with a rod of iron, as the premillennialists would would say is going to happen during that time. But they're saying uh, the church is going out the church is reaching the nations, discipling the nations even uh, toward Christianity, and everything is becoming Christianized leading up to the return of Christ. So you have the, just real basic here, the premillennial, amillennial, and postmillennial views that to talk about when Jesus will be returning in relation to his millennial reign. Yeah, and that's that's helpful because it puts everything in perspective on the on the major things. And there's a variety of differences between all of those views on some minor things, but those are the major issues that are involved there that really I think that each proponent of each view would at least essentially agree on that. And maybe there's some minor things that they would tweak here and there, but that that does help, uh, hopefully helps our listeners to be able to think about what's going on right now, especially if they're engaging in some of the theological discussions happening um, in social media, because it seems that there is a growing upswing in the popularity, particularly of post-millennialism. Have, have you seen that yourself? Oh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, post-millennialism, it, it's a very interesting phenomenon. Post-millennialism was popular 100 years ago, lost popularity when the world was at war a couple of times, and now has made a comeback. And it has been uh, kind of like a cultural thing. It, it, it's developed, post-millennialism has kind of developed its own culture within the sphere of Reformed theology or Covenant theology as a whole, and many people are attracted to that culture, and they end up becoming post-millennial theonomists, if I could throw <laughs> throw another theological word in there to muddy the waters a little bit. Yeah, well, since you've introduced it, and that is an important aspect of this discussion, why don't you, uh, just in a, in a nutshell, just a little thumbnail sketch of what is this, this idea of theonomy, and how does that connect with not all postmillennialists are theonomists. Many postmillennialists would reject theonomy, but what is this extra twist that you've just thrown in there for our listeners? Sure. So it's important to keep in mind postmillennialists believe the world is going to get better and Christianized 
leading up to the return of Christ, and it's the church's doing. Uh, the church is the means by which the whole world will become Christianized leading up to the return. Well, then the question becomes, how will the church disciple the nations? How will the church cause the nations to become Christian? And what many post-millennials will say is that they will be taking God's law to the nations and calling uh, the nations to implement the law given through Moses to uphold the the rule that was given to Israel, that you, know, you read your Old Testament and God gives Israel this law that they are to regulate their nation through this law that was their constitution of sorts. Well, now uh, the church is to go out and to call the nations to implement that law in their nations while also recognizing the lordship of Jesus Christ and his resurrected glory, but, but to govern their nations by the law that was given through Moses. And that is the way through which the world will become Christianized leading up to the return of Christ. And for our listeners that maybe aren't familiar with all of these uh, ideas that we're introducing to some of them today, that's clearly very different from dispensationalism, which is making a distinction between uh, Old Covenant, Mosaic Law, and uh, what we're living in right now in the church age. And so this is uh, something that maybe if they're not reading, they're not engaging um, with either books or podcasts or on social media, they may be completely unaware of this whole different world, especially if they've only been involved in dispensationalism. Yeah, and in one sense, you're very blessed if you're <laughs> unaware of all of that, because it does lead to confusion and infighting and everything else. But on the other hand, this is what's popular in a lot of conservative Christian circles. Now, I'm not saying it's popular worldwide, generally speaking, or it's popular in Christianity, generally speaking. Conservative Christianity, where we would place ourselves, it's becoming more and more popular, and these people have a lot of online influence, so we have to be aware. Yeah, and you know, could you name for us some popular post-millennialists? They don't have to be currently living. They could be historically post-millennial, but some that maybe our listeners might know but didn't know that they were post-millennial. Sure. In the past few decades, the names that would come up in this realm would be R.J. Rushdoony or Gary North or Greg Bonson. Greg Bonson did a lot of work in theonomy. If you have uh, the Five Views book on the law, some one of those counterpoint series books, the, the Five Views on the law, Greg Bonson did the uh, theonomic view in there, you know, which is helpful to read. But that leads up to today where you have Doug Wilson, who's a major voice in this realm. Uh, his church in Moscow, Idaho, Christ Church, is very influential and is doing a lot in the realm of media to reach people with the post-millennial perspective. But in just the last year, maybe year and a half, but I think year, uh, James White has jumped on board and has become post-millennial. So you have Apologia Church down in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, that area, and they're very influential online. And these are brothers. I, I really appreciate a lot of what they do. I There's so much of what they do that I support and appreciate about how even how they do it, not just what they say, but how they do it. But when we get into the realm of ecclesiology, what the church is, what the purpose of the church is, where all this is headed, uh, how God's program has been revealed to us in the Bible, we do have some major differences that need to be discussed, that need to be confronted, while still recognizing you're born again, but 
boy, we're, we got two different missions in our mind about what the church is to be doing in this day and age leading to the return of Christ. Well, even if we went back in history, all of those that you mentioned are important, but even some of their favorite uh, writers, theologians like Jonathan Edwards, um, many of yes. the American Puritans, um, hopefully nobody is a big fan of, of Charles Finney, but Charles Finney was post-millennial as well. And so uh, we have a gap, and I think that that uh, shows the historical anomaly that we're in now, because so much of what Jonathan Edwards and the Puritans, even, even Finney in his own way, were uh, hopeful because of the growth of uh, the the nation. Uh, all the, these are these are pre Civil War guys, and of course, post millennialism thinks that all this industry, everything is growing, everything is blossoming. It, it, there's these revivals that are happening. The Great Awakening is happening, and so it seems like they're ushering in the kingdom, and that Christ is imminently going to return. And then they have the Civil War. And then they get hit again with World War One, and then they get hit again with World War Two, and so that's kind of the anomaly today: is that um, things are getting darker and darker still. And every single one of those men that you mentioned, particularly Doug Wilson and James White, would point those things out. But they've got the long term in mind. And when you went back to your definition, we go back there, and you said um, that they don't even consider the millennium that we are in to be a literal thousand years because many of them are saying, yes, it's dark now, but it will, it, it's a long, long game. And we are, we are working and working and working. And as long as dispensationalists and others that are so doom and gloom, aren't getting involved in trying to change the world to usher in the return of Christ, then it's just going to take longer. So everybody get active, everybody work hard change the world, Jesus will return. And that could take another thousand years in, in front of us if we don't. Yeah, talk talk about a, a paradigm difference between uh, dispensationalists like us and post-millennialists. Uh, they deny the imminent return of Christ. They have to. Yes. Uh, this, this is something I didn't mention earlier, but it is a very important uh, reality. They cannot believe that Jesus is coming back today or tomorrow because the world has to become Christianized first. And it's not uncommon to hear these guys say, we're still in the early church, or let's let's do things today that will make a difference for the church 4,000 years from now. I mean, that's the kind of language they use, which is very, very different than the language we use. And it it is very influential. I mean, I just want to throw another uh, couple names out there just so people can kind of understand the growing influence here. And just looking at Moscow, Idaho, with uh, Doug Wilson's group, recently they uh, attracted Jared Longshore there. Jared Longshore was down in, in Florida with Tom Askell and Founders Ministries. He's left being a Baptist altogether and has become a post-millennial Presbyterian up in Moscow, Idaho. Joe Rigney, same thing. Joe Rigney was with John Piper uh, up in Minnesota with Bethlehem Baptist and was uh, there at the seminary. He's now gone over to Moscow, Idaho. Uh, these are these are men who were with other influential men and not only have left the eschatological views they once had, but have left their Baptist view that they once held to and have become full-on Presbyterian post-millennial theonomists. So it's very influential. It's It's going to be more and more in academia in the years ahead as these men start to write books that uh, 
end up on pastor's bookshelves. So we, we just have to be aware of what's going on here and make sure that we understand their position. Yeah, and you're right. Uh, let, me, let me read a couple things. This is from Jonathan Edwards. And he's speaking on how the millennial kingdom will be ushered in. And I want you to talk about it as you're listening to this to uh, help us to see the change from, I, I guess we could call the old post-millennial view and today's post-millennialist in the way that they're bringing these things to be. So this is what Edward said. This is a work that will be accomplished by means, by the preaching of the gospel and the use of the ordinary means of grace and so shall be gradually brought to pass. Edwards expects the Spirit of God to do something, and he says, he shall be gloriously poured out for the wonderful revival and propagation of religion. And so there's this blessing, uh, and he would have been aware of this in the Great Awakening, is this, this awakening of people spiritually by the ordinary means of grace, by which he means the preaching, the proclamation of the gospel, and that God in the movement of the Spirit and the preaching of the gospel would bring in his kingdom. That's not what we're really hearing post-millennialists declare today, is it? No, uh <laughs> Again, to throw another term out there, I, I kind of having terms build on one another, but another one that's very important is Christian nationalism. That's really what is at the heart of a lot of the discussion today when it comes to post-millennialism and theonomy. You have many post-millennialist Christians who believe that we are going to need to turn our nation into a an explicitly Christian nation. And you do that through the means, uh, so to kind of contrast here, Edwards and today, the means now more becomes legal, where where you're trying to change things at a legislative level. You're getting involved in government. You're seeking to really have the church and, and state blend together in such a way that the Christians take over. <laughs> okay. Um, now, again, th- this is my way of describing that. So I don't want to say, you know, I'm quoting James White or anything or Jeff Durbin here. I'm just, uh, this is my observation. This is the way I, I'm choosing to articulate it is the Christians infiltrate and take over. And then you end up with a Christian nation. Now they, they, they deny wanting to do what Constantine did. They say, well, look, we're not going to do this like forced baptism stuff and, and forced religion. God's going to use this means to change their hearts, and it's not going to be forced. But boy, uh, you just don't really have a lot of biblical backing for that. And, and it seems like every time that has been attempted, every utopian society that has been, whether it's here in the States, and there was a lot of utopian communities that built up in the early New England areas, um, they always failed. The Puritans failed in producing a utopian society where everybody followed the law of God. And then, you know, it worked for a little while. And then you have the children of those that establish these communities and these laws, and and it eventually crumbles. And, and that happened for Edwards himself. It happened for those in New England that established these types of setups. So uh, I don't know what they're thinking in regards to how it'll be different this time, but it has never worked before. Well, that's the, uh, the phrase, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it, that sort of thing. Uh, we get so far removed from attempts in the past, and we think, well, it'll be different this time. But boy, you just don't see really a pathway to 
success, what they have in mind here. And again, it's the biblical backing. That's the real problem is, is where do you see in Scripture that the church is commissioned to legally get involved, uh, legislatively change the nations into Christian nations? I, I don't see that support there. I don't see that as being a part of the mission of the church. And for me, that is the biggest deal. I mean, if, if God said if God said it, if God commissioned us to do this, I, I have to be on board. I, I want to be on board. I want to submit to him. But when this is just man's doing, these are man's ideas of how this is going to happen, I am going to freely reject joining with such a movement and say, you know, look, uh, God's given the church a different mission, and I'm going to stick with God on this one. Yeah, and, and you know, the former post-millennialists, um, it, that eventually morphed into social gospel. And um, you've got a whole bunch of different dynamics that are working today. We do have a social gospel, social justice movement. Yeah, and I, I just want to say I can understand the temptation to want to try to salvage what you can of this nation that so many of us have loved for a long time. America has been a uniquely blessed nation in world history. Uh, that is something we have to uh, in, uh, see in our mind's eye. We, we have to grasp this reality that America has been unique. There's just no doubt about it. And for so long, we had common grace so explicitly revealed in this nation where we had, you know, and I'm not saying that a bunch of people were actually born again, but we at least had the support of Christianity in our nation for a long time, which is absolutely unique. And now we're seeing that erode. We're seeing that crumble and dissolve. And that is very, very sad. Yet at the same time, it's extremely normal for fallen men who are in government to hate God and to hate the Lord's church. And so what we're actually doing is transitioning, as far as world history is, is concerned, we're transitioning from a unique time to a normal time. And we, we, I think, as American Christians for a long time had thought that our uniqueness was normal, and now we're going into abnormality, but that's actually not true. We're actually getting more into what the early church had to deal with, which is what the church has had to deal with for so long uh, across around the world for millennia. It's dealing with governments that don't like us. And that's hard for a lot of people, but we have to embrace that that's what's happening as God lifts his hand of common grace in this nation. Yeah, and I, I think that helps us to see, you know, kind of where the nation is moving. But at the same time, in that, you're not saying we throw up our hands, we do nothing, we we don't vote, we don't try to um, speak out, we don't do these things that we have the right to do as citizens. But we're recognizing that there is two citizenships that we hold. We hold the citizenship of our own nation, and we remember that there are Christians all over the world that are parts of other nations. And yet we uh, are citizens of heaven, and our primary duty is to make sure that we follow our king first. And that doesn't mean that we can't speak out against uh, social ills and wickedness in our land. Mm -hmm. I think we need to do that, and I think we need to do it very, very clearly without any hesitation, without any apology, and be bold. And I think we need to vote, and I think we need to uh, encourage those that would run for office um, but I think that the focus there is not what the postmillennialist is saying, so that the result is these things. <laughs> but instead, it's like whether or not that happens, 
we understand that God is still working and that his church is still being faithful. And I think it's a way of derailing the church's mission by moving it in that post-millennial theonomist direction to say, we are going to usher this in. The idea is we have to do this by any means necessary. And that's not everybody, and that's probably a very small fringe group. I don't want to be unfair and broad brush everybody, but that does lead to that in some some cases where uh, this this kind of a bunker mentality is we're going to buckle down, we're going to win, and we're going to do it if we have to overthrow the government. And the fringe are saying those things as well. And they are coming from this stream of uh, post-millennialism. It's not all of them. It's probably a very small minority of them. But that's that's a dangerous thing. Anytime you get away from the Word of God, what you have left is man's pragmatism. So uh when 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 that's your uh when that's what you're left with um a lot of things are on the table now as options that weren't options before and and yeah i, I mean i appreciate the clarification that you know we're not saying abandon society uh but it's an interesting tension we have to hold on the one hand we agree with macarthur who got blasted you know last year whenever he said we lose down here we we agree that the church is not going to usher in the kingdom of Christ by Christianizing the world. The, we are going to be persecuted. And the general trajectory of the world is going down the toilet. Uh, we're going down and down. I mean, this is the, the birth-paying stuff that Jesus was talking about in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Things will go from bad to worse. That's going to happen. Yet at the same time, as you know, we can consider ourselves... Uh, or label ourselves pre-trib dispensationalists. That's what I'll label us anyway. (laughs) We're pre-trib dispensationalists, and we just keep doing what we've always done, which is missions work, where we're going to reach the nations. Uh, We've been exemplary in that in the Christian world of sacrificing all kinds of stuff in our lives to go reach people with the gospel, to establish solid local church communities, where we care for the people here who claim the name of Christ, and we we counsel them, we minister to them in the best way that we can, and local evangelism too, where we focus on reaching out to our community. We just need to keep focusing on those things and, and training up the next generation of church leaders uh, while recognizing that we lose down here. And that that's a tension that the uh, post-millennialists don't like, but that's the tension that we get from the Word of God, and we need to embrace it. Yeah. You know, and, and I think a lot of um, our brothers that are post-millennial or amillennial would say we're very pessimistic. And I think we're pessimistic to, this in, to the degree that Scripture is pessimistic. And I think that's, that's fair. I think when we look at what the Scripture describes, since we're taking it from a, a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic that's consistently applied— that's what the scripture teaches. And, and post-millennialists and amillennialists will, will agree. They'll say, if you take it literally, that's what it does say. Um, and uh-huh. so we, we only are pessimistic because the scriptures are pessimistic in that this world will not get better. Um, and well, it does when we contrast, yeah. when we could contrast premillennialism with post-millennialism, which one is more optimistic or pessimistic, the kingdom without Christ or the kingdom that has Christ <laughs> ruling from Jerusalem with the rod of iron and the nations submit to him and the nations recognize his lordship and he is explicitly displayed as king of kings and lord of lords. I, you know, I'm going to take the pre-mill position on that. Absolutely. Yeah. And and the, the reality of, of John MacArthur's comment about down here we lose is a comma, not a period after that statement, yeah. right? 
because we lose down here, but then Jesus comes and we come with him and we win. It And, uh, you know, like you said, when Jesus comes, everything will be set straight. I have far more faith that Jesus coming will set everything straight than, you know, than you know, James White and Jeff Durbin fixing everything or, you know, Doug Wilson fixing everything. Uh, and, and that all of the, the disciples of these post-millennialists are fixing everything um, because they don't have the power. And yes, their their belief is that the Holy Spirit will empower them. But, you know, I don't know what the tipping point will be for the post-millennialists to look up and say, I don't think this is working. But, I, I, you know, of course, one day we will find out. We will find out what the truth is. One day, uh, I believe that our Savior will come and take his church to be with him forever in the clouds, and we will be glorified, and we will return with him when he returns gloriously at the end of the tribulation. One day, we'll find out. And um, I don't think it's worth um, you know, anathematizing our brothers or um, all the mean-spirited stuff out there. But that kind of brings me down to your interactions. Um, Twitter is... Uh, sometimes described as a garbage fire. It is just uh, a dumpster that is a, f- a flame with the the worst of the worst in comments. And you have um, gone in there and engaged not just on post-millennialism or eschatology, but on a whole, a whole bunch of matters. And so that element of moving away from these ordinary means and your interactions with some, I would guess, that are not only post-millennialists, some even starting to stretch into Christian nationalism or uh, theonomy or things like that. Um, what is uh, What has your interaction with those that are um, of that ilk, uh, those types of covenantalists on Twitter informed you about those issues? What is it kind of, you're starting to draw some conclusions just from your interactions with actual people, not just with a, uh, a theology book. Um, what has that taught you? Well, they say there's a fine line between brave and stupid, right? <laughs> and so I've I've tiptoed into the, the Twitter uh, sphere and uh, with my body armor and hazmat suit and everything on, uh, gone into have co- theological conversation. And, you know, it, it is the, the modern town square in a lot of ways. You can uh, have an, some interesting interactions on there and just hear perspectives of different people. And that's really been my goal. And what I've learned from those who are more on the reformed side of things or the covenantal side of things as opposed to dispensational. So these are the post-millennialists millennialists and even some premillennialists who are non-dispensational. These are the people I kind of interact with with a dispensational perspective on things. And I think the biggest takeaway I have is they just don't know their Old Testament prophets. Uh, I don't want to sound, you know, prideful about that. I don't want to sound mean-spirited about that. I do think it is just a fact, actually, that they don't know Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos. Uh, these amazing prophecies that we have in the first two thirds of our Bible, the the part that comes first, uh, they they haven't spent time studying it. When I bring up passages like Jeremiah twenty three five through eight, where it says, "Look, um, the king is coming, and this righteous branch of David, and he's going to <laughs> in, in this in this amazing future event, he's going to rule over." His people, Israel, who are going to be led back and dwell on their own soil. I mean, how explicit is that? It's like the, the first time they've ever heard it. Or, you know, when I talk about 
uh, in Ezekiel 39 about the burial ground of Gog and how people are going through and picking up bones and setting markers and saying, hey, when did this happen? If everything in the Old Testament is fulfilled already or if this is all allegory, what is this passage about? You know, um, it's like they've never seen it. They don't even know it's there. And that, I think, is probably the most prominent takeaway I've had, but it's also the most tragic reality is that so many of these people just don't read their Old Testament. Yeah, and I think that takes us back to some of the comments I made at the beginning of our conversation, is that some some have moved from whatever original position they began with, and they have followed the popularity of their favorite folks, their, their Christian celebrities, yes. and they have not actually put in the effort to read deeply, not just not just their, their heroes' books, but read uh, the scriptures and to see if these things are true. And they have just continued to migrate from one position to the next, and they are very much like children tossed to and fro by the waves because they don't know what they believe um, they, they currently think they believe one thing, and all it takes is for their hero to change their positions to cast some doubt, and then they move and slowly migrate again. And so this is troubling because it does show a lack of maturity in some that have have moved from one position to another. Not that people can't move, but you right. ought to have good, solid, foundational reasons for moving that you're convinced by the Scriptures, and, uh, yes, and and w- what I see today is, as I mentioned a few moments ago, is this whole cultural aspect, especially within postmillennialism, that there's a very attractive culture there. But this, I think, this is true in a lot of Reformed theology, where you have this theological system that says so much has been fulfilled. We are living in the culmination of all things right now, and. Uh, they, they exalt Christ, which is obviously good, and we support that. They do so in a way that is out of step with the program of God as revealed in Scripture. And so they are attracted to this uh, culture or the systematic theology or a very simplified version of, I mean, let's face it, uh, when you study the uh, that he's revealed about wood, there are a lot of details, and people can get really complicated and confused, and they're turned off by that, and they like the simplicity of saying, Christ is king now, the kingdom is here now, uh, look at the more spiritual side of things, and it's more streamlined. Uh, but up, in order to arrive there, they're giving up a consistent hermeneutic. They're giving up the meaning of words in the Old Testament. They're giving up the intention of the authors, the, these prophets, uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel. They're, they're giving up the authorial intent of those prophecies for the sake of embracing a theological system that was developed initially by men like Origen and Augustine, who were revolutionaries in the way that they approached Scripture, and really took us in a bad direction. We have to admit that. They took us in a bad direction. Um, and even though they claim the name of Christ, and even though they they do uh, exalt Christ in their writings, they are teaching bad stewardship in the way that they instruct people to interpret Scripture. And that's where these views have come from, is from a bad interpretation of Scripture. So we don't want to give that up in order to get a simplified theology. We want to know what God has said and let the chips fall where they may after that. That has to be our posture. And if it's not, we have wrong motivations. Well said. I mean, we we are just have to continue to encourage 
those that uh, we have influence over, the, our brothers and our and sisters in churches, and those that are around us that will engage us in serious consideration of these matters, to go back to the scriptures, to 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 really to study them uh, honestly. And I think that the more that we see that happening, then we will see them hopefully awakening from this. Because I, I think many of these uh, well-meaning brothers in post-millennialism have um, made statements that I think they would be shocked maybe five, ten years ago that they would even be making things like, well, yeah. this, this, isn't, this isn't exegetical, um, but I'm not concerned with that. I'm concerned with what's going on in the world or things like that. And you're thinking, are, are you kidding how, how is it that you have dropped even a basic understanding of what scriptural texts say because of what's going on? And they accuse us, dispensationalists, of being uh, newspaper theologians, and they really, mm-hmm. really have picked up that mantle very well um, in what they're doing today in many ways. Yes. I, I mean, I, look, I, I'm a dispensationalist, even though I wasn't raised in dispensationalism. I wasn't raised in church at all. Uh, I haven't owned or used a Schofield reference Bible. <laughs> I haven't read or seen Left Behind, believe it or oh, not. No. How did I, you get into IFCA? <laughs> <laughs> I, I reject all the end times hysteria ministries like John Hagee and, and all those guys. Um, I just love consistent hermeneutics. I, I love reading God's Bible, uh, the, the Bible he's given us, God's Word. I love reading it in and understanding what he has revealed. My, my concern for defending dispensationalism isn't rooted in the dispensations themselves. It's not even rooted in end times events. It's rooted in preserving the storyline of God's program as he's given it to us in the Bible. And, and we can only ascertain that by a normal, consistent hermeneutic. Because dispensationalism isn't primarily a, a theological alternative to covenant theology. It's really a hermeneutic that holds forth fundamentally different values than the hermeneutic of Reformed theology. These theological systems are really just the fruits of the philosophies of interpretation that are opposed to one another. And I'm, I'm going to side with a contextual, literal, grammatical, historical, plain, normal reading of the Bible, rather than just jumping to a streamlined uh, systematic theology that may or may not reflect accurately what God has said. That's excellent. That is true. And and we need to continue to keep ourselves committed to God's Word and uh, the right interpretation of it. Well, Jeremy, this has been insightful and hopefully very helpful to our listeners. I appreciate your insight and sharing from your heart what um, you've been experiencing. And uh, hopefully be an encouragement to some of our brothers and sisters out there that maybe they don't even have a Twitter account. They should get on their Twitter account, get one, and uh, maybe just lurk a little bit. Just read yeah. um, and listen and uh, see what's going on. It's a good window into the world out there, both theological as well as just in general. And uh, if anybody got onto Twitter and they wanted to follow your tweets, they wanted to uh, connect with you on Twitter. Um, what is your Twitter handle? Yeah, you can find me at jhow0089. So J-H-O-W-0089. That's where you'll find me. Um, and <laughs> yeah, be prepared to see some interesting stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, God works through all kinds of means, and he does work through these social media to interact with people and not only share uh, our views, but also to share the hope of Christ. And that's uh, an important uh, marketplace that we don't want to be absent from as well. 
for sure. Absolutely. And that it can be discouraging. Um, you know, I'm getting ready at the time we're recording this, I'm getting ready to go on a sabbatical. It's a 30 day sabbatical and I will be going to uh, 0% on all social media for that time, which I think will be really, really good for me. Uh, but at the same time, it's where the people are and it's where if we're going to have influence, uh, we have to know how to communicate with people in our present day. And the reality is people aren't reading books like they used to. They're watching videos, they're reading tweets, and, and we need to go out there and advance the cause uh, in any way that we can. Well, thank you, Jeremy. This has been another episode of Advancing the Cause, the podcast of IFCA International. We are thankful for you listening to us today. And if you'd like to subscribe, we'd appreciate it. If you'd like to know more about IFCA International, we'd invite you to check out our website at www.ifca.org. There you can find out more information about who we are. You can read some blog posts. You can listen to some audio. You can read our documents, uh, our doctrinal statement. And if you'd like to join after you've checked us out and feel like we'd be a good fit, there's a tab there that says Join IFCA, and you can go and find out how you can become a member of IFCA International. Well, until next time, God bless. We'll see you soon. Bye.